The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, bless your word wherever it is proclaimed. Make it a word of power and peace to convert those not yet your own and to confirm those who have come to saving faith. May your word pass from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and from the lip to the life, that as you have promised, your word may achieve the purpose for which you send it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A couple of reminder announcements. Voters' Assembly today, following the late service, we'll have a pizza, a pizza lunch, and then a Voters' Assembly. So stick around for that if your schedule allows. If you'd like to purchase an Easter lily or one of the other Easter flowers, um, I can't remember the other options that are available, but you can sign up for Easter flowers. There's a sign-up sheet in the narthex at the base of the stairs. Um, Rich Sudis, I mentioned last week, uh, Rich Sudis uh, did die uh, last week. We, his, his, uh, the, his family's wishes were to have a, a burial relatively quickly, so we buried him on Tuesday, but we're planning his funeral for in the weeks ahead, so be on the lookout for information there. Coming up on March 20th, we have Laudamus. That's the St. Louis Choir, uh, their touring choir, Concordia St. Louis Choir. Their seminary will be here on Monday, March 20th at 6.30. And um, they've invited young men of the congregation or anyone interested in learning about the seminary, a seminary experience. So we've kind of reached out to some of the younger, uh, younger men in the congregation, young boys, even down to junior high, have shown interest in these things to join us for a dinner before that at 5.30, I believe. Beth, are you in here? When I say, Beth, are you in here and you raise your hand, it doesn't help me, Teske. All right. Uh, I think 5.30 there. And we'll, and we'll be on. If you have questions or if you're interested in joining us for that, for that dinner, uh, just let me know. Uh, Lent, Holy Week, and Easter worship schedule in the week at a glance. Um, Easter breakfast and Easter egg hunt that day during Bible study hour, just two services. So we did away. We've, we've, tried, we've toyed with so many different schedules for Easter in the past. Um, trying to accommodate the diversity of, of preferences and, and lots of people. But really, we figured out even pre-COVID that we can fit everybody who wants to be here in the sanctuary between the two regular service times. So um, this, we used to have a sunrise service, which who grew up with a sunrise service? Who grew up with us going to a sunrise service and an Easter vigil on Saturday night? It's very rare, and here's the reason why. There, there is no sunrise service. The, the Easter vigil is the sunrise service because think from the Jewish counting of time, this is, this is why at the end of the Easter vigil, or really halfway through the Easter vigil, there's the transition, we turn the lights on, and we say the, don't say it, resist, you say Christ is risen, and then the rest of that that we don't say during Lent. Uh, so that whole thing happens during the service on Saturday, and the service begins at sunset. That's also the, the weird reason why we have this, the, the odd starting time of sunset on the third day, because that's, Jesus rose from the dead after, sometime after sunset. So sunset on Saturday night is technically Sunday morning, right? So in our American 21st century mindset, it's, Sunrise is the beginning of 
or really technically 12, what, 12 o'clock in one second or whatever it is. But, but sunrise, we kind of start thinking of Sunday morning. Well, no, it's, it's any time after. So that's why there's a vigil on Saturday night or sunrise service. So as we're reflecting on this, and we, we, didn't have, we had a lot of the repeat crowds at sunrise service. People were coming, they were coming to sunrise because they either felt obligated or they were part of a choir. We were looking around like everybody who's here is either a, an acolyte, a sacristan in the choir or a pastor. Um, I mean, there are a few, a few others obviously too, but, but we're like, yeah, what are we doing here? So we have the vigil on Saturday night and then, um, which is a fun service. If you had a chance to come to the vigil, check out, maybe check it out this year. It runs through the Old Testament, long readings. It's a, it's a relatively long service. Um, it starts with the candlelight outside and we process in. And then we hear all the promises of, of the Messiah throughout the whole Old Testament. So we're hearing, as Jesus says in Luke 24, all the scriptures are about him. And if we don't see it, then we're the problem. We're, we're missing it. So in light of the New Testament, in light of the revelation of the gospel, we're able to then look back at the Old Testament and see how Jesus is all over the place. And so that's kind of the fun of Easter Vigil is we, we read these long, uh, these long uh, pericopes and, um, and can make those connections to the gospels. And then we hear the early morning resurrection account and the sermon, divine service, and so forth. So if you haven't done that before, it's, it's, a, it's, it's certainly a unique. It is unlike any other divine service that we do because it's got so many different weird, just not weird, unfamiliar pieces at the beginning where chantings and readings and all the rest. Um, Lent soup supper sign up at the Welcome Center. Still looking for helpers on that. Um, apparently there's a lot of, so one of our members had a bunch of stuff he's trying to get rid of and it, it showed up in the narthex or in the, um, the entrance of the gym. Uh, the principal of the school does not like there to be junk in the entrance of the gym. So it's going to be there for approximately today and then it's probably going to go in the dumpster. So if you want to stick your nose in there, Dave Bodenstab is kind of cleaning out his, cleaning out his house. Um, so, uh, and, and lastly, and perhaps most importantly, even more important than the Easter Vigil, um, next week, there's no one signed up for coffee. <laughs> so you might, you just ask yourself, is God laying it on my heart <laughs> to be the one to solve this crisis? It could be you. So there's a sign up sheet by the coffee uh, on the way out. Please consider jumping in. If you don't know how, uh, you could talk to uh, the McSwines. Did it today. Kevin and Elise, somebody can walk you through, Gretchen as well. Easy peasy, that's right. All right, let's jump into our, into our text, Luke 18 today. So grab a Bible if you don't have one. Scroll down to Luke 18 if you must. Handouts are in the back. Now to give us a running start into Luke 18, well, I guess maybe I'll read the first verse and then I'll back up. We'll go Tarantino style. We'll start at the, we'll go backwards. And 18.1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So the context of that is helpful because if you recall at the end of chapter 17, you get this weird thing about the end times. And in fact, Rebecca McBroom, are you here, Becky? Last week at the end of Bible class, you asked, I wrote, made a note to myself, asked Becky to ask her question again. Start with the end times wrap up as Becky asked. So I don't remember what that means. 
So tell me what my note to myself means. Did you have a question? Do you remember? Yeah, so th this gets at the, maybe the bigger, so if you didn't hear the question, Becky's asking about the, basically the diversity of opinions regarding the rapture and the end times. And in fact, if I were to ask you all right now, um, if, uh, the next, when I finish Luke in 2027, um, what Bible study, which book of the Bible should we study next? And I were to give you like a survey, the number one question, or the, the one answer would be what? Revelation. Uh, because it's confusing, on the face of it, it's confusing. Luther himself even said, a lot of this is confusing. Um, so we're looking for clarity on this. Um, and so the, the basic approach to the book of Revelation, and really all of the scriptures, is we take the most clear scriptures, the ones that we know what they mean, to interpret the unclear scriptures. So we don't use, we don't take Revelation as our guide to understand Matthew, or Romans, but the other way around. So we have this clarity that we're given by St. Paul, for example, in Galatians, uh, that, that we can't add anything to the works of Christ for our salvation. That's like the clear message of Galatians, that you can't be saved by anything you do. And now that, with that clear understanding, we can look at the book of Revelation that has a lot of imagery that isn't unfolded for us of what it, what it means. Surely we can speculate, but unless God says this is what it means, I mean, we'd be hard-pressed to say this is for sure what God meant when he said this. I mean, that's, that's somebody stepping into, we call it the realm of enthusiasm. Like God, God wrote this one thing that isn't clear to you, but it's clear to me. God's given me special revelation to understand this passage. That's called enthusiasm, not in the sense of I'm really enthusiastic, but in the sense of God somehow directly giving me special revelation. And that's dangerous stuff. Because then I can say, God has told me that we need to buy a private jet for the ministry at Bethany. And if you disagree with me, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with God. You see the problem? So that's where it's like, it gets kind of scary when we're interpreting unclear scriptures with a certain level of, of authority that the scriptures just don't lay out. Anyway, um, so... Yeah, so, so it's helpful there, though, in the context of one being taken and one left, one left behind, to use the Timothy LaHaye language. It's, not a, it's in Matthew. It's not a secret rapture. So, so it's the, and this is the whole point, like in Luke 17, for example, which is the, uh, what we talked about, um, I believe, last week. The end of 17 is one left behind, or one, one taken, one... Um, the coming of the kingdom beginning in 1720. The days are coming, you'll desire to see the Son of Man. Some will say, look, there it is. It's not gonna be a secret return. So some will say, hey, look, the Messiah is coming over there in downtown Chicago. There's this miracle thing happening over there. It's not gonna be a secret. 
Everyone's going to know. It's going to be as clear as lightning in the sky, he says. In contrast to this, this like whispering thing that's going to secretly occur and no one's going to know about it. There's also no second chances. This is the, one of the primary concerns, the, the biblical inconsistency regarding th- rapture theology from my, from my limited maybe knowledge of the subject is that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to secretly rapture believers. That's why you'll be driving along and the car in front of you, all of a sudden it's going to be unmanned. It's going to crash into a pole and there's going to be mass chaos. And then there were going to be persecution. There's going to be this thousand year trib, tribulation period where people are, are motivated by fear to jump on board. So now, instead of faith coming by hearing, uh, the Lord coming into me by way of gospel, now I'm going to be incentivized to accept Jesus into my heart, to use their language, by fear of damnation by, or by fear of this persecution, as though um, I'm, there's, there's going to be a second chance at the last coming. And that's not the case. It's clear in Matthew 25, for example, all the judgment parables, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the sheep and the goats, the final judgment, it's, it's just it. It's it. It comes back. Jesus comes first. Thessalonians 4, I believe. He comes back with this cry of command with the sound of a loud trumpet and the, and the archangel, this loud, loud noise. Um, and we're all going to know what's happening. Everyone's going to know that something is going on. It's not done in secret. Yes, believers are taken in this, in this judgment period. And how this is all playing out, it's not laid out for us because the world is also destroyed in this. The timeline isn't, isn't laid out for us in the New Testament, but Christians are, the Christians who are alive are taken up, but not before those who have already died. So those who have already died are taken up, and then those who are alive are taken up, and we somehow see the destruction of the world. And then God rebuilds, he recreates a new heaven and a new earth, and then, place, and then heaven descends onto earth. And then that's where we live eternally. So heaven, heaven comes down onto the new earth. But there's not like this, this hidden period where God's going to take these people away. And if you haven't, if you didn't jump, if, if you didn't accept Jesus into your heart before that point or become a sincere believer before that point, you're going to be left to suffer. And then during that suffering, maybe you'll be incentivized to, to make a decision for Jesus. It's all based on, so they think about the, the fundamental um, presupposition of that entire theory is that I need to make a decision for Jesus. So salvation is ultimately hinging on me, do, me making this final decision. I need to be motivated toward the decision and God's gonna motivate us in various ways for ultimately me to make the decision. The, the, the scriptures are pretty clear on this, that we're born sinful, Psalm 51.5, that we, the, 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 the entire tree is corrupted, that I am unable to choose anything but sin except by the grace of God. Faith itself is a gift. So it's, it's contradictory to the clear scriptures of the gospel to try to say God's then going to bring this weird secret rapture and then all this thousand year of tribulation of fear to try to motivate me. So the way that you've got, I forget all the terminology. In fact, I mean, if you want to see an expert on this is actually Brian Wolfmuller, who is here um, you, can, you can look up his stuff on YouTube because he was like a premillennial, what do you call it, 
tribulationist or whatever it's called. So he, he, now, he, was, he swam in those swam in those waters for a long time and kind of worked his way through it. So he's, he's quite a helpful voice in making the distinctions between the different categories. You have premillennial, postmillennial, amillennialists. Um, the, what seems to be the clear, the clear view is everything in the, new, in, in the book of Revelation is symbolic. So it talks about a thousand years. It's talking about a clear period. Just as it says... Um, the cattle on a thousand years are mine, or th the, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. Does that mean that the cattle on the thousand and first hills are not his? No, it just means all of, all of the cattle are his, all that belongs to him. It's a fullness number. This thousand year, which is where the, the, a lot of the rapture is caught, the rapture theologians are wrapped up on that thousand year number from the book of Revelation. Um, it's getting at the fullness of time of the church. And the time of the church is, is, and we can see this, I think, clearly, from the time Jesus ascends into heaven until he comes back again, the church is being persecuted. There is a tribulation. There will be, as Jesus says, wars. Well, that's only just, just last year did wars start. <laughs> Rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, all these trials and tribulations that the church faces and, and the world faces have been here. So it's nothing new. Um, so it's, just, it's a reference to this period of the time of the church until Christ returns. And when he returns, it's not going to be secret, and there will be this taking up of the believers, but it's immediate. And then, the, then there's immediate judgment as well. The dead are raised, the souls come back to the body, and then there's the final judgment. How that all plays out doesn't really say... I mean, the sheep and the goats is maybe the clearest picture. But God separates those who are in Christ from those who are not in Christ. Um, but if we start to, when we start to make speculations, this is one of my like MOs with interpreting the, the book of Revelation. When we start to speculate in some of these things in a way that it brings us fear contrary to the gospel. Jesus says, come to me, my yoke is easy. Come, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But also you should be scared to death that you don't get raptured. Wait, hold on, Jesus didn't, he didn't say that. Uh, also, when he was dying on the cross, he said, it is finished. As long as you're sure to make a decision for Jesus before I come back for the rapture. So like these, there's these clear things in the scriptures we don't add to the gospel. And when we, when we do, we start speculating on the final judgment and it only brings us fear. And then notice then the solution. I mean, in every case, the fear has a person then looking back to themselves for certainty. Uh, have I, I mean, consider it yourself. Have you sincerely changed your life enough to resemble an authentic Christian. It raises all these questions. Like, what does an authentic Christian look like? Am I authentic? Am I sincere enough? What does authentic mean? So I'm getting, I'm starting to point. I mean, to be sure, like we should be loving our neighbor and living the Christian life and prayer and, and, and worshiping, receiving from our Lord and all these wonderful things. But, but even that itself is, is a gift from him. As soon as we start looking at ourselves for any kind of certainty from fear on the last day, we're going to only find despair. We're only because the law's job is to is to dig and find holes. 
So we start evaluating ourselves to try to find, well, I know I'm good on the last day for some other reason other than Jesus dying for me. I'm going to look at my life and look for evidence and try to find certainty, try to find evidence of my sincerity, evidence of my authenticity. And in every case, I'm taking my eyes off of Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, and putting them on myself. And there's nothing there but despair. Which then is actually perfectly sets up for what Jesus is getting at in the second part of, of today's handout for Luke 18 with the, 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 uh, the Pharisee and the um, tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee is taking up the law. And who, in fact, it says in verse nine, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the natural way of the law. If I think the law is the way that I can find certainty of my salvation, I'm going to then think I'm self-righteous, find a righteousness in myself, and then judge everybody else. I'm going to take up the law and use it as a weapon on everybody around me. And this is a perfect picture of what this Pharisee does, and it's what always happens with a person who finally thinks, I've kept the law enough to find certainty and salvation in myself. In my, in my, I figured it out. If only you could be as good as me. But, and, and they should. I mean, there, there, there is major persecution. We're, we're in it now. But like, so they say that from the luxury of their, of their American homes. But what, what about those in China? They're not getting ready for persecution. They are in it. Or, or all the guys as they were inside the, when Nero is like putting Christians, living Christians inside of animal carcasses to then throw them to the lions to be eaten alive. They weren't thinking, they weren't thinking they were being persecuted at all. They weren't. Yeah. Yeah, it's, unfortunately, that's when Hollywood, in a way, starts to inform our understanding of the end times. So, I mean, that, that was really popular when the Left Behind series came out. When was that? Like the 90s? Like 96? But so, but the, it didn't go away because the, the theological presuppositions are all still there. The decision theology hasn't changed. And therefore, that same key to interpreting the book of Revelation hasn't changed. So if that's if that's your key, then you, you read it back into everything. In fact, even in preparation for today, um, sometimes I like to listen to, to guys, so well-respected theologians who we don't agree with, because sometimes they have helpful insights, but a lot of times we can glean helpful insights, helpful insights from what they don't say. Um, like John Piper, have you heard the name John Piper? So I was listening to John Piper on, on this text in Luke 18, and for him, it's all about the, the return of Christ. So he's, for him, like, that's the most important thing. His primary concern is the return of the Son of Man and this time of, this time of trial, and everything then is subservient to that. So when we're reading the text, we're kind of looking at it in a different way. Like goal, the, the, the scriptures are delivering to us Christ not trying to create in us a sense of fear that I need to get, I need to make myself ready. 
He even said, John Piper even said, if you don't, in, in, in context of the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you're going to be like the Pharisee when the Son of Man comes in the last day, you will go to hell. So you need to listen to me. I'm giving you the answer to make sure that you don't end up like the Pharisee. Pay attention. This is real. And I'm listening to this like, what? Like he's bringing this, he's bringing this fear of like, there's a, there's, I'm on the way to hell now, and there's a secret like password that I need to listen for, that, he's, that John Piper has been given a special revelation. He's going to give it to me, and I'm going to know the password, and then I'll know how to get out of hell. So I'm the free agent in this. So I need to make sure I'm listening, make sure I'm doing everything I can to stay out of hell. As if Jesus was dying on the cross saying, it's partly finished, right? I mean, I, 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 I'd say all this, I mean, I shouldn't be, so, I'm not, I am, I'm a, I'm a mocking person, but um, I say this with, a, with a, a, a heart of concern to those who are in that theology, right? I get frustrated because Luther talks about it as um, a kid. Can someone turn me down? Beth, could you turn down the wireless just a touch, please? Thank you. Um, a kid who's been bitten by a dog, you, you don't go up and you hit the kid. You comfort the child and you hit the dog. And this is Luther's explanation of Paul's, thank you, it's perfect, Paul's harsh treatment of the Galatians and the, his introduction to Galatians. Oh, you foolish Galatians. He's got this like harsh frustration against the false teachers in Galatia, but also a pastoral concern for those who have been swept up into the false teaching that I need to keep the law in order to be sure of my salvation. So we comfort those who are in the, who have been pulled into this theology. And then I, I pastorally get frustration with, with teachers, but it's not given to all of us. I mean, you're, you're not, most of the time you're talking to a kid who's been bitten by a dog. Most of the time, all, your friends and peers um, who have been pulled into theology, it's all done in the, in the best way, in, in the sense that they're, they're at their church listening to their pastor who, I mean, they should be going to church. They should be listening to their pastor. And unfortunately, when the lights, when the, when the lights were taken off of Jesus and put, not, put on oneself, or that's where it becomes an issue for us. So if you find yourself in such a conversation, don't, don't be tempted to fall into the trap as we all do of getting, getting either, either A, confused, because you just cling to the sure words of Jesus all the time. It is finished means it is finished means it is finished. If faith is a gift, a gift is a gift. It means there's nothing for you to do. So like that, those kind of basic starting points are helpful. But then also you can kind of see it as with this air of sympathy. Like if I've got a friend who's kind of wrapped up in this theology, they have been robbed of the comfort of the certainty of salvation on the last day and today. So not just the last day, but really every day I'm living in perpetual fear that Jesus is going to come back and I'm not going to be ready, right? So... To try to, to try to sow seeds of comfort into the midst of that is, a, is, is your vocation as a Christian friend to, to try to bring comfort where there is nothing but despair. Where there's uncertainty, there's fear and despair. Where there's certainty, there's comfort. And so when they're throwing out these, well, what about these verses that say these things that are potentially, potentially confusing, confusing, I'm going to bring up Jesus on the cross saying it is finished. Like how does, if he's finished, then why, right?
And now we're having a good conversation. It's also helpful to put everything in the form of a question. That's interesting you'd say that. What do you mean, what do you mean when you say that I need to be sure to make a decision for Jesus before the rapture? So what do you mean? So you're, so you're saying that right now I'm not saved until I follow a rubriced prayer that you've laid out for me that Jesus didn't say, but you've given me a Just want to be clear. I'm sure on what to do, what I need to do. Because when Jesus says I'm not saved by works, I want to be sure that the work that you're giving me to do is the right one, right? Um, but then put it as a question. What do you do? Like, how would you maybe interpret Jesus when he says it is finished? So we're having it. But now we're, we're in a conversation. And that's, and that's the good stuff. We're in an ongoing. We're not, trying to win a, we're not trying to win a debate. We're trying to have an ongoing conversation. And you can learn and, have, and you even come up short. Like, I don't have an answer for that. That's a good question. And then come back. Call me, we'll talk about it, research it, dig into your Bible more. Ina had a question, a comment? It makes me think of Jesus when he was, you know, talking to people and they wanted to pin him down. Like, when is the kingdom of God coming? How many will be saved? Or will it just be a few? He never answered those questions, but he often said, the kingdom of God is among you, right? So those who already believed in him and loved him, the kingdom was theirs. And so that, that then, when it's going to come, when, he, when it comes, it's just going to be... Yeah, that's a good. So uh, Luther, Luther put it like this in one of his letters to, um, to uh, somebody who was despairing over being condemned. Um, or they, were, they were nearing death and despairing that they might be condemned. And he says, the very fact that you're worrying about this is evidence that you're not condemned. So maybe that's kind of what you're getting at. When, when a person is perplexed and finding fear about whether or not I'm, I'm saved, like what? If you're not saved, you don't care about that. And, and the, the, the tactical navigations of such conversations are, we, we, we do draw a lot of help from Jesus who often answers questions with questions. Like, uh, on whose authority do you teach these things? And Jesus says, well, how about this? You tell me on... On whose authority you do this, and I'll answer, I'll answer this question. And they wouldn't answer because they were scared of the Jews or something. So um, there's that. I'm finding less and less concern over the, maybe the, the, the our, our American secular culture, secularized church even, um, is not as interested in revelation type debates anymore. Generally, maybe it's because there's an apathy in American Christianity like, we just don't care. I don't. We're not, so we're trying to make a case. This is true. Jesus actually died and rose. It actually matters. Um, and I, I just don't, I don't care. Whereas the, the, the rapture theology kind of is trying to invigorate a, uh, a new a caring. You should care. This is a 19, was it the 1970s um, door-to-door evangelism, like knock, knock, knock. If you were to die today, where would your soul go? Ah, I haven't thought about that. There's a sense of urgency and it kind of motivates me to think about that. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a great tactic, but 
it's true in a way. I mean, literally yesterday I was having a conversation with a guy about the same thing. He said, like, I don't know if I really even need God. And I, I said, so what's going to happen to you when you die? To push to the end. What happens then? We're, like, it's, it's helpful, but you put it as a question. What did he say? Let's not unfold the conversation of this <laughs> rather intoxicated fellow of uh, St. Patty's, St. Patty's Day celebration. But people seem to open up on religious things when they're a few in. Yeah. Yeah. And yet there's an increase in church attendance among millennials um, in the last decade from 20, I think I saw it was like between 24% up to 32% or something. There's a kind of a shifting back because the world is so chaotic. They can see it. They see the chaos. They see the confusion. And many in the, I think it's called the millennial generation that would be those who are raising young children today. And they didn't necessarily grow up in a firm Christian household. Because many of their parents were like, they felt like they were too overbearing on religion. So they grew up in a house and where they're like able to make a decision uh, whether or not they're even going to go to church. And so these kids at best went to vacation Bible school or something, but they were, they were living off of borrowed Christian capital. That is, they grew up in a household where mom and dad were still teaching morality of right and wrong, good and evil. We call them maybe American Judeo-Christian values that that you can hold, I mean, many, many in America have held apart from the necessity of the Bible. They just would argue that certain, these, certain, these, these certain truths are, these certain values are true and, and right and good. Then, then now we get into our, our mess of today where there's no truth at all. And then when you push that, who gets to define what is good and, good and evil, right and wrong? I do. And that's why we have chaos. So it's not, why is it bad for some guy to walk into a, a school and shoot a bunch of kids? If it works for him, well, he shouldn't hurt other people. Who says so? Who defines that? So now you have a, you have a view of morality, and they get it. So and we're seeing this more and more like in the school. I talked to Linda about some of the tours that she's had. We had so many, many more people. They're, they're, it's, the, it's the millennial generation who have maybe grown up relatively unchurched and yet recognizing the chaos of the world, and they don't want to see what the school, the public schools are teaching the kids overtly. They're not even hiding it anymore. And they're like, I don't want my kids to, do, to, go, to be taught that. And so then we're given this cool opportunity to be able to, to teach the Christian faith to these children and then hopefully impact the families through it. But they are kind of coming back from, this, from the awareness of the insanity. At some point this morning, I should probably start talking about Luke 18. We have 15 minutes. All right. Is that okay? Any other comments or questions there? Sorry to cut that short. All right. Luke 18, verse, verse 1. So that I, remember I mentioned the context. Jesus from Luke 17, uh, 22 had said, um, and he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say, look here, look there. Do not go out and follow them. He's kind of referencing this, the time of the persecution of the church. 
And, and Jesus taught at length of that. And then they started asking him questions about when is it going to come? Where is it going to come and all that? But um, the most convincing commentators that I read were, were getting at that being the key, the key pivotal um, pre, um, pre-teaching to get into 18. So, that, so the context is Jesus has talked about the time of the church, this time of persecution for the Christian church, which we can associate it with increasingly so. And then he says, he tells them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. They never said they were losing heart, but Jesus senses it. Like there are, he, he recognizes that it's both happening and it's going to happen all the more. So reflect on your own experience. What causes you, what causes you to lose heart? What kinds of things, when the Greek, the Greek idea here is to be dis, discouraged. Like what's the point? Reflect, take a moment, reflect upon your, with your table. What kinds of things cause you to lose heart? 30 seconds, go. Don't talk to me. Talk to your table. Keep it to yourself, Kevin. All right, what do you got now, Kevin? Suffering? Yeah. What do you mean by suffering? Well, what I mean by that is when, you, when it comes upon you, you're not focusing on Jesus Christ. Maybe you're focusing on the suffering, and that could cause discouragement in you. And not really focus so when things are going poorly in your life, yeah. because of the gospel or just in general suffering? Uh, because of the gospel. Suffering for being faithful for the gospel. So for the, for, the, for the teacher, we've got, we've got a number of, of like very faithful Christian Lutheran teachers in the, public, in the public schools who are being told they have to do certain things that they just don't do. And the day will come where they just have to finally, well, I guess I'm fired then, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that's not just true for the, the teachers. Anybody, anyone working in like government sector jobs, we forced to have such decisions. And it's obviously not limited to there, too. We're seeing it every, everywhere. Um, who is it? Rich? Is Rich Ford here? <laughs> every other day, Rich sends me a different email from his uh, LGBTQ office for diversity and inclusion that's making him read some PowerPoint about all the things they're supposed to bow down to. Um, eventually, you get, you get pushed to a point where you say, well, I'm, I'm given to say here that this is going to be the hill that I'm going to die on. Um, and in a way, though, that shouldn't be discouraging. And, and it's, a, it's a gift. Um, what, a, what, a, what, a great, what a great thing. It's, it's a tragedy. It's hard because there's it, a time of trial for the family to lose income um, and be rejected by peers and all that kind of stuff. Well, but it, it is a gift, but being still in the flesh, sometimes we vary from the spirit to the flesh. Well, so like Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, he got out okay. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, throw in the fire, they got out okay. So I'm willing to take persecution so far, right? I mean, I'm willing to go the way of Daniel and be thrown in the lion's den as long as I still at the end keep my job, but it doesn't always work that way. Look at, look at all, in fact, the New Testament martyrs are all a long line of, of those who are 
who are killed for being faithful, and that's our lineage. It's funny that you mentioned that about a job, because that's why I left mine. Yeah? Yeah. I thought it was because you didn't know how to fix the air conditioner at the... <laughs> no, it's, ha- it's increasingly happening among us, and that's all the more helpful. I mean, that's getting back to, though, think early church, the, the helpfulness in the early church as a body, where when we have members of the church who, are, who, are, who have lose their source of income or are rejected because of their, their belief in, the, in God, in, in the true God, that we're able to actually rally support, rally in and help them, support them, encourage them, um, hopefully even help them financially and so forth. So that's part of our obligation to one another, to be, to be the shoulder to, to lean on. Good. What else? What else you got? What else causes us to be discouraged? You ever turn on the news and walk away not discouraged? It's always negative. Yeah, that's right. It's, like it's always everything from like every election. Even when you think your guy's in, you can't win. Like nothing, it's all kind of going down. So it's certainly discouraging. Anything else? Yes. So we can be discouraged in our own Christian life from my, my, my own personal failures. And then also we, it's discouraging because it's like no matter, no matter where we turn, you see the devil kind of, the devil in the world kind of creeping in. Uh, so you're like, what, which, which cartoons are, are not going to be trying to like shift the mindset of your four-year-old? Which, where is it safe? Oh, which commercials are safe? Which, like, I can't go, okay. Which store isn't pushing an agenda? Like, everywhere you go, it's like it's paralyzing. It's this, and so that's this paralyzing um, feeling of losing heart is exactly what Jesus is talking to us about here. And he says, he tells them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. So that in the, in the Greek here, it's not necessarily pray, like never stop praying and take a, take a bite of a sandwich, but just the idea to have this regular rhythm of prayer in one's life. And then he gives this parable to answer this, this um, heart of discouragement. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, that's a problem of a judge. It'd be nice if a judge does one of the two. So... If he respects God, he at least has his bearings or, or at least respects the law. So no matter what people think about me, I'm holding firm on what the law says or I'm holding firm on what God says. I mean, in this case, hopefully God and the law would be, would be in parallel, right? So, um, but, but if a person it doesn't care about what people think, they're holding firm to the law or they don't care about what the law says, they're just trying to make people happy. That, that person is also can be manipulated. And we see that. We actually, we see, that's actually the two different views of interpreting the Constitution, right? The law is the law, or the law is determined by social opinion about what the law should be, right? This judge doesn't care about either way. Now, how do you, how can you, like, get help from such a person? Yeah. 
You, well, that's, that's kind of what we're learning here. But you think, so you, in a practical way, and like in our, and consider our society, who ultimately can get what they want out of seemingly unyielding politicians? Those with money. And, I mean, money slash power. Violence and strength. And so in contrast to that, I mean, that would be like the way that, the only way that you can make inroads with this judge, um, it is the opposite. It is a widow who has no money and no power. It is the weakest who is then brought before this man trying to get justice. Um, if there is a widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice. Justice, what is Justice. At the root of the Greek word justice, it shares a root with, with righteousness, to make, to make right, to make, to make whole. So you can, you can consider justice as making right what has gone wrong, to make whole, to fix. Fix this. Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, pestering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Greek there is literally, give me a black eye by her continual coming to me. Now, interesting there, I mean, it's, it's not, she's, not, she's not hitting in black eye. So what is, if I have a black eye, what do you see? My black eye, right? So even though this judge says that he's not influenced by the opinion of others, what's ultimately, what's ultimately the thing that gets him? His reputation. His reputation. And the Lord said to her, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice? Will he not make wrongs right to his elect? How much more will God give justice to his elect who cry to him, that is pray to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice, vindication from sin and shame. He will make wrongs right. He will give justice to them speedily. That Greek word is the exact same word for soon. He will vindicate them soon. So think in the context, what's, what's happening to Jesus in a very short time? He's headed to the cross. So we're, we're seeing justice is about to be given. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We'll come, that, we'll come back to that last statement is, is helpful. But look at my handout here. What do we learn about prayer from the parable of the widow and the judge? How ought, how ought we to pray? So the, the, the widow... Yeah, so he's, so he's promised to hear us. And Luther, this is the way Luther words it in the catechism. Uh, we should pray um, because he's told us to pray. So we have certainty that he's going to hear our prayer because he's commanded us to pray and promises to hear us. And that's the, your number three, fill in the blank there. We, why can the Christian pray in full confidence? Because we pray not according to our worthiness, but according to his command. So he's told us to pray and says he'll hear us. And so... We have certainty and a confidence in our prayers. But see, here's this overlap. So notice how God is, God is who, who is God being compared to by the parable? The unrighteous judge. So it doesn't do the widow any good to appeal to the judge according to her worthiness under the law. It didn't matter. He didn't care. 
nor did it seem to matter for her to come to him according to her own reputation, what she somehow earned or, or worthy of. So God, judge, you owe me. Or according to the law, I deserve this or that. Because if we approach God according to the law, do we want what we deserve? We don't want what the law says. And if we approach God according to our reputations, does that do us any good? No, so we approach God as those who are emptied out of everything, like a widow with nothing, who's simply beating down God by repeated prayer and holding him to his job, holding him to his promises, his command. And that's our, that's our confidence. That's how he so don't lose heart. So pray in that way. How are we doing time? Yeah, one minute. Ah, okay. Uh, let me see if I can get to it. The one thing I want to focus on here, maybe look at number five. One might say that in response to prayer, God gives us what we ask or something better. What do you think about that idea? When it comes to prayer, God will give you what you ask or something better. That's different than saying God will give you what you ask or not give you what you ask. But he's going to give you what you ask, or we can actually understand that he will give you something better than what you ask for. What, is that, what does that imply there? What's kind of between the lines? He's the father who loves his children and knows what's best for them even when they don't. So our prayers in that way are actually short. We don't know what's ultimately good for us. We know what we think we want, right? And so, but we're given to just pray. And, he, and even more so as his elect who cry to this God to give us justice, who is not the unrighteous judge, but rather the loving father. So if, if, a, if this persistent widow can get this kind of reaction from the judge, how much more so than our than the elect praying to God persistently, repeatedly, with a confidence that whatever he has given me is ultimately better than what I was asking for, even if I don't see it yet. Now we're at time, I'd like, I would like to pick up um, at the, because that last piece on the Son of Man with finding faith on earth is, is kind of fun. And that will give us a good transition into the Pharisee and tax collector. Apologize for my snail's pace, but we'll get through eventually. I will pick up on verse eight-ish for next week. Any final questions? The Lord be with you. Oh, voters assembly. Leave the, leave the tables and the chairs, please. Thanks, Ty.